You're listening to the Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Get ready to be inspired as we explore provocative topics surrounding innovative technologies and ideas with top industry professionals, digital entrepreneurs, and provocateurs. At Impetus Digital, we believe that everything starts with a conversation. We aspire to act as the bridge to not only ignite these courageous conversations, but to also sustain them over time. We do this through our Insight platform, which features our award-winning Insight events and Insight Touchpoint solutions, and through these fireside chats. In the end, our hope is to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. Let's get started with your host, Natalie Eden. CEO and co-founder of Impetus Digital, an all-in-one, fully-serviced virtual collaboration and communication solution for online meetings, events, conferences, and advisory boards for life science companies. My name is Natalie Eden. I'm the CEO and co-founder with Impetus Digital. At Impetus Digital, we have built some of the best-in-class asynchronous and synchronous virtual collaboration and communication tools. We have been working with life science companies for the past 14 years. We've been helping them with everything from virtual advisory boards, online medical education, ambassador programs at, at conferences. We actually mix the best in class of consulting and online recruitment and contracting and all of that extra white glove service that you need and that we bundle on top of our really comprehensive tools on our platform. So we really have a really incredibly differentiating tool for doing collaboration with physicians, payers, allied healthcare providers, and even patients. But more importantly at Impetus, we really believe that everything starts with a conversation. And from these big, hairy, audacious conversations that oftentimes happens in our platform, but even here with some of the leading edge thinkers, the digital provocateurs, and the healthcare thought leaders, we can all work together to collectively and positively disrupt healthcare. So I'm super excited about having one of these healthcare thought leaders at the table with me today. This is actually Dr. Tom Sawyer. He actually graduated and he has an executive MBA from the University of Cambridge, as well as a PhD from the University of Glasgow. Tom Sawyer has has nearly two decades of experience in everything from entrepreneurship, consulting, he's done private equity investing, corporate finance, as well as strategy in a whole diverse number of sectors, including biotechnology, IT, logistics, and natural resources across the globe. He has held all kinds of positions, including CTO, CFO, CEO, and COO. I don't know what else positions exist in the C-suite. He's actually had them all. Um, He advises and mentors startups and MBA students at the University of Cambridge, and he is currently an honorary lecturer at the University College London School of Pharmacy as well as currently holding the Chief Financial Officer position of Connectivity Neurosciences. Dr. Tom Sawyer, so happy to have you on the show today. Thank you, Natalie. It's great to be here. So quite the background. I don't even know where we would start on something like this, Tom, but maybe you can just start off by giving us a brief description on how the heck you ever ended up being in the position that you are with Connectivity Neurosciences and tell us a little bit about your career trajectory. Yeah, look, it certainly is a a winding path that's taken me to this point. Uh, And I think it's funny how things all fall together at certain points in your career. But yeah, look, look, I mean, you you said it there. I mean, I started off as a young, keen biological scientist, uh, you know, undergraduate degree, ended up being fortunate enough to to do a PhD. 
And I think when I came to the end of that, you know, there's some very interesting research, learned an awful lot about, you know, project management, you know, getting, you know, research carried out, working with people and so on. But I realized when I graduated that I wasn't going to have that, you know, meteoric rise through the scientific ranks. And and so so I actually bizarrely ended up working in, in IT, actually almost by an accident um, and, and started developing and, and designing technology systems, really database systems and web front ends and so on. So. So that kept me busy for, for a few years. And indeed, I started my first company um, off the back of that, uh, which was really delivering weather forecasting data for specialist use. So things like you know, skiing and climbing, which is what me and my colleagues uh, were very keen on. Uh, and that that went went pretty well. And then I ended up working in, in consulting a little bit. It's kind of got drawn into, really, I was working in Scotland, got drawn into working in London, London really, coming to where the action was in the UK. <laughs> and eventually, you know, kind of worked out that I was, what I was most interested in was really the business side of things. So I was lucky enough to be, you know, accepted to go to Cambridge to do an executive MBA on a, what was a fantastic course. And then that really kind of changed direction. It kind of, you know, brought those elements that you had before, but brought in a big corporate finance slice. I ended up working in, uh, you know, with in, in, in finance, uh, you know, evaluating due diligence projects, working, uh, setting up portfolio companies. And uh, eventually I came back around to my first love, which was really in life sciences. So worked in, in drug discovery, early stage therapeutics um, companies, and ultimately, came to meet uh, the founders of, of Cognitivity um, in Cambridge as part of a mentoring situation. And I was immediately struck with, you know, someone who sees hundreds of companies throughout a year, that this was the best idea, or the most, you know, with the most potential that I'd seen for, for the longest time. So started with a friendship, you know, we ended up working together on raising some money. And, uh, you know, many years later, here we are. Here you are. So really interesting. And so what I thought we'd maybe start off with a little bit is about what is cognitivity? And more importantly, again, because you were sort of in the fundraising area and you, you know, you're obviously still in the finance end of things, is what differentiated cognitivity from all these other tools that helps you to devise and understand and diagnose sort of these neurological disorders? Tell us a little bit of what you were seeing in the marketplace and what set cognitivity differently and what exactly this company is. Yeah, so that's a really great question. I mean, I think really at the heart of what is special about cognitivity is that the underlying idea is incredibly simple, but incredibly powerful. And this is often the case with, with you know, really, really, you know, fantastic technology. And, and really what, what, what's, what we do is, is, is to look at the way that you evaluate brain performance, i.e. your cognitive function, in a very, very different way. And we often use a, a, a sort of an interesting analogy around computing systems. So the traditional way of measuring cognitive function is through a series of memory examinations, effectively, over the course of half an hour or so, you'll answer various questions and, and people will score you in relation to that. And that's like when you're looking to measure the performance of a computer, looking at the hard drive, like how well does you, do you read and write data? We do something entirely different, and it's much more looking at the way the CPU works. So how does how well can the brain process complicated information? So it's an entirely different approach. We look at a, a visual stimulus and we measure the speed and accuracy of reaction to those. But the task itself is incredibly simple, but incredibly powerful. And what it does that we do that other people can't do so well is that we're able to pick up on really early changes in performance uh, of the brain. And we can do it in a way that's independent of language. There's no learning effect and it can be massively scaled. So 
you know, from the very first concept, the way that it works is really, really well. But the way that it's developed as, a, as effectively as a product or a family of products is incredibly powerful and allows us, us to to reach, you know, many, many people very quickly. So, um, so yeah, it, and, it's, and it solves a very clear unmet need in, in clinical practice. And that is that ability to quickly evaluate brain health. Interesting. So let's actually just tease apart one of the core areas or fundamental or products, if you will, that... Um, that uh, connectivity specializes in. And that's just the initial piece around the diagnostic, the diagnosis of something starting to happen to you neurologically. Um, tell us a little bit about that aspect, which is called Cognica. Um, what exactly is that software? How is it set up? What does it do? And what does it help to diagnose? Yeah, so so Cognica is effectively our, our flagship clinical product. So that has CE marking. We have FDA 510K registration in the US. So it's approved for use in, in clinical environments. And, and really is, it's like you said, it's delivered as software. So the clinical tool is on iPads. And the test itself, you download it, you set up, log into your account, and then it enables you to, in the course of five minutes, to really you know, in a very sort of sensitive and effective way, look at how well the brain functions. Now, we like to use an analogy uh, to, to uh, equate it to a blood pressure test. So the idea is that a blood pressure test is a very quick, easy to administer test, but it gives you some indication of your cardiovascular health. So that's why it's done routinely. Any checkup you go to, they will always take your blood pressure test. If blood pressure isn't where they expect it to be, the clinician knows then to, to investigate what's the cause of this. And, and, and as a result of that, interventions in cardiovascular disease happen very, very quickly, nice and early. So they have a very good record of, of effectiveness. Not so for the brain, which is, of course, the most important organ in our body, but it gets it is neglected. You know, it's not looked after in the same way that the, the cardiovascular system is. So by being able to quickly and, and accurately assess whether the brain is performing and functioning the way it should be as part of a regular checkup, then clinicians are able to see things coming to investigate the cause of any impairment and to make sure that any interventions then happen early enough when they can really have an impact. So, so it's a bit of a game changer, really. You know, the fact that you can take uh, a technique or, or a way of looking at brain health that previously needed a specialist and took a lot of time, was very time consuming and very expensive, bringing it to the front line of healthcare where it becomes a much more routine, much more normal thing to do so that we can just see how, how well people's brains are getting on. So I want to kind of uh, double click on that because there's a lot there and there's a lot of opportunity and I'm sure you've been thinking about this. So, so just double checking, you're saying that this is now considered a medical device um, or a clinical device that actually does something. So it's, now you've had clinical trials, it's actually been evaluated. It actually is a verified clinical tool. Now, yeah. I'm just thinking about the, the, the patient or the participant experience. So let's just say, for example, I'm going for a routine checkup to see my physician on an annual basis. So I'm actually sitting there in the waiting room and I'm about to go into the office. Tell me a little bit about um, Connectivity's goal or plan about what happens or what you would like to see happening before the patient actually gets in the waiting room. Are there things that could be done at home? Is there something that can be done in the waiting room or should there be something happening actually in the physician office when the patient's actually interacting with the physician? What does that currently look like and what do you see that looking like in the future? Yeah, so, so on the primary healthcare piece, 
it's like I said, you know, the idea is that you should, particularly when you get over a certain age, let's say um, upwards of 50, that you should be having your brain health checked regularly in the same way that you would have your cholesterol or your blood pressure che uh, test checked. And that's exactly where it sits in exactly the same place. So if you were to come in for a regular health check, you would either see a nurse or you go into a room. And these are not administered by a, by, by a, a doctor, but more by a, a, you know, a nurse or, or assistant within the practice. These are then a sequence of short tests that you do. So blood pressure, cholesterol, you do height and weight and so on. We sit in with that lot. Okay, so, so the, at the same time, you can sit in the quiet corner or in the room, do the test, takes five minutes. What then happens is that the results from the test go to our cloud-based architecture. It then feeds a, a report directly through the health record system, the electronic health record system to the clinician. So that when you go into your consultation with the doctor, at that point, they can have you know, report on your brain health, they can have your blood pressure all in one place so that when they see you, they already have the information to hand, you know, they, they don't have to then spend any time in that. And that's one of the, the sort of very important things that we do is that we free up clinic, clinicians time so that they can do what they need to be doing, which is talking to you rather than, you know, administering a test on you or anything. So then this high quality time happens. You then also, they get this early warning of any issues that may be there. So if cognitive function does not appear to be where it should be, they can ask why. Is it because the patient is, you know, is, is hasn't slept? You know, is it because they're on a course of medication that is associated with uh, lowered cognitive function? Are they alcohol impaired? If you can explain it, then it's fine. You don't need to worry about it. You can keep an eye on it. If the impairment is unexplained, then that gives you a very solid reason to repair. Now, this is a, a sort of critical point in efficiency on the healthcare systems, because what happens, particularly around things like dementia currently, is that the, the, the primary healthcare practitioner, because they don't have the time to go into any in-depth examinations, they have to use a subjective assessment. So they say, OK, did the patient appear impaired? Fine, let's look into it. Was impairment um, reported by a relative? Fine, they go into it in that. But that doesn't catch everybody. And also you have the category of patients who are the worried well, who are people that are, you know, uh, they're, they're functional, that they're, they're healthy, but they have maybe forgotten where they parked their car or they left the milk out of the refrigerator. You know, they start to demand, I, I don't think I'm, I, you know, I'm cognitively healthy. Can you please refer me? If they refer, they suddenly go into an expensive and time consuming process. Whereas if they can be easily re um, reassured with a very short test, which is sensitive and, and reliable, then again, you're making the system more efficient. So people are referred early when they can be helped and the referrals are of a higher quality. They are people who need to be seen. So that's really where it sits. So it's a very simple thing. And the test itself is, uh, it, it, it plays like a game. It, it is very much less stressful than sitting in front of a specialist who will sit there with a clipboard and, and ask you to you know, recite sequences of letters and numbers, remember words and so on. You just literally sit there, play this little game it reports out, but the performance is very, very high. So, uh, so we're finding that our feedback from clinicians is very, very good. That's a fantastic process. And I'm actually just sort of thinking, you know, currently that's the way the situation is, but I mean, even with COVID, you know, we have been moving more towards a digital engagement, you know, with healthcare providers of all sorts, including nurses. And this idea about being able to use tools that are digital and le leveraging some interoperability so that that information is 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 channeled into the electronic health records. How does telemedicine work in this equation and with the particular and with and with um, with Cognica? Yes, and you touched on a very important point in the previous question, which is the idea that this can be done remotely. 
So, you know, obviously what we do fits very nicely into the clinical environment. You go in there, you have your, your you know, your health checks and so on. You, you see your doctor. But our, our technology does not require to be supervised. So it can be done remotely. And we recently completed a study here in the UK in the NHS about how, how well it performs remotely, which is, which is very good. So in the whole telemedicine piece, that's really what's trying to be achieved is, is the idea that you can have an interaction with healthcare without leaving your home, without having to travel to the clinic, without, you know, using expensive facilities. And we, we sit perfectly with that. So, like I said, the idea that you can regularly take a, a clinical quality test at home, which will then report into electronic health record systems. And in telehealth, you can report other things as well. So we can look at other, other measures of health that are relevant to helping you to be given into a certain pathway for a diagnosis. So again, it's all about keeping on top of things, having a nice early, early warning of any problems when you can really address them well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to understand as well too what the business model is. So I'm just assuming that as a participant or a consumer that I could go on to, you know, uh, the i, you know, the i or you know the Android store, wherever it is, and download this onto my phone or my computer. I'm assuming free of charge. I don't know if that's the case. Then who ultimately is paying for this, and what is the business model behind this? Yeah, that's that's a very very important question. So so currently, uh, you know, with any clinical tool, it is not something that that people can just download and use on their own because the context is very important. So we have artificial intelligent models which work in the background, and they basically give a, a sort of probability of impairment, so generalized impairment. But again, this sort of measure is not something which is designed for at-home use. Again, clinical supervision is is required because I mean, if you think about it practically, you know, if you show that there is potentially an issue. Well, what do you do? I mean, if you're sitting at home with nowhere to turn, that's not a very useful situation for anybody. So again, if you take a test, there's potentially a problem. You want to immediately be speaking to a doctor. You want to be finding out what's going on, seeing how important it is and, and to be reassured. OK, um, so, so that's the first one. Now, the future of this is actually probably much broader, though. So, so really, in terms of our business model, we are, are selling our, our clinical tool to clinical providers. So that's in the US. Uh, we have a lot of business in the Middle East. We've got um, activity here in the NHS in the UK. And the idea then is, is that providers will, will, will buy a, a subscription or a license to our, our product. They can use it as often as they like. And it gives them that extra tool where they can reassure their patients that they are looking after their, their brain. And also, again, like I said, with the efficiency improvements that are that are gained through having a a reliable measure for making clinical decisions around brain health. That, that's that, that's really, really important. So, and then in which case the people that are paying for it, you know, here in the UK and, and places like Canada, there is a much more, um, you know, sort of a government driven healthcare system. So then the, 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 the payer and the provider are basically the same thing. So that works very, very well. But even with our, our, our customers in the US, you know, we have many clinicians who are using it that understand that the, the sort of extra value it brings to them is very important. You know, again, this reassuring of patients to be able to give the best possible care, to be able to give the best possible outcome outcomes to their patients. So, um, so yeah, so, so we are finding that it is resonating in the market. Let, let's put it that way on, on, on both in, and, and in the Middle East in particular. So we have a lot of success there as well, where they are just wanting to give the best quality healthcare to their, their patients. So digital is really making a, a, an accelerated impact on uh, an industry that's highly disruptible right now, which is healthcare. And it's coming up in a many different persuasive and very useful ways. Now, what's really interesting is you're talking about a, a core tenant, if you will, of how physicians do an assessment of an individual and diagnose their current health status. And that is using pen and paper, some, let's be you know, fair, hopefully that's electronic, 
but it's going through a series of questions and steps and blood pressure and other things and become a staple in how the evaluation is being done. Now, suddenly you're talking about mental status and mental health. Obviously, we're in a, in a society of an aging society. This is almost becoming a requirement. But my question to you is, is besides interoperability, is how are you instituting a change in thinking on legacy frameworks on how um, physicals or diagnostics assessments are being done? So it becomes part and parcel of the standard way that people think and do, and more importantly, even how things are recorded. And we didn't talk also about how this information is conveyed. How do we make sure that there's a little bucket or a little tab on a piece of paper where people are tracking your mental health? What are some of the things that you're doing to make this part of um, the way we think? Yeah, look, again, a really important area because anybody that comes to the market with a, a new way of doing something, there is a an element of, of you know, behavior change that, that needs to happen. Now, what I would say our experience is, is actually that we find that clinicians grasp this very, very quickly. And what we're really doing is, is, is taking a process that was yeah previously fairly inaccessible. It was uh, down the diet. You had to refer before anybody got to it. So it was a lot of guesswork involved and in bringing it to the front line. So, so that just requires a slight shift in the way that people think about whether they can do this, whether this tool does enable them to do that. And we find that doctors, when they when they realize this, actually warm to this very, very quickly. And it's like, oh, hang on, now suddenly this changes what I can do. And again, it's, it's really helping them to be able to be the best doctor they can. You know, it's giving them information that allows them to make the best clinical decisions. So, so yes, I think it's always a challenge, but we are not finding it to be one that we that is you know, insurmountable, we're actually finding, you know, like I say, a great degree of uh, um, acceptance of this approach, really. So, so, and that's, I think that's, that's the main thing. I mean, driving that adoption, that usage, it kind of spreads, right? Once people start realizing that, that it can be done easily. And, and again, it's, 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 you've mentioned it as a minute ago as well, the idea that, that, you know, that, that technology is enabling healthcare to deliver more. And therefore there's an expectation of, of patients who are customers, that, that more can be done for them. And the idea that people are properly looking after their brain health, that are properly looking after them is, is become very, very important. And it's become like, it's almost like it becomes commoditized. You know, this kind of basic level of, of, of healthcare that covers everything uh, is a, yeah, it becomes closer to a right than a privilege. And that's, that's important that our tools are able to deliver that to people. I want to talk a little bit about the software and some of that really great algorithm, um, not obviously getting into the I, any of the IP, but more or less on how it's working and what you sort of foresee in the future. You mentioned that there's some artificial intelligence in that. Obviously, there's the, the core tenant of you know machine learning and the idea of building upon an individual's progression of neurological changes over time and then having that based on you know what they considered a standard way somebody should be so it's there's a there's a predictive nature based on some standards so i guess the question really comes down to is number one is there some concern about some intrinsic bias in the way the algorithms were were built based on the history and you know who the who people have you know how you've collected the data and secondly yeah. if this is not going to be a standardized tool that patients can just use on their own how are you leveraging machine learning at a personalized level for an individual to not just take a blood pressure once or, you know, or again, a, a neurological assessment once when you're seeing the physician, but being able to do it on an ongoing basis to be able to assess over time progress or changes in the neurological system. 
Yeah, look, uh, again, a really, really good question. So so there are two elements to this. And the first one I, I would say is actually very much related to, to regulatory requirements. So if you are going to have uh, a medical device that, that does some sort of diagnostic process, um, it is important from a regulatory point of view that it works as, as a one-off. So the idea is that I walk into the clinic, I do this test, you know, it gives a result, but that result is, is you know, relevant and, and accurate as it, as, it, as it can be. Okay, so that's the first one. So so that's what we have to do. So the, the initial Cognica setup is really designed that it has to be able to deliver that. Otherwise, you know, the European Medicines Agency and, and the FDA and people aren't, aren't interested in its ability. It needs, needs to do this reliably. So that's the first one. So, so it needs to work like that, and which it does. And we have... Uh, you know, a very comprehensive clinical study, which we carried out on multiple sites in the NHS here and here in UK. And, you know, to your point about um, the diversity of the of the, the patient population that we carried it, that's incredibly important. And in fact, by doing a number around London, we actually fortunate enough to be working in one of the more culturally diverse urban populations that we have. So we were able to publish a paper quite recently on the you know the, the the cultural relevance and the transmissibility of what we do. So so we're we're, we're feeling on very comfortable scientific ground from that point of view. But yeah, like you said, you know it 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 makes a lot of sense when you're able to chart over time. So a one shot um, uh, test enables the AI to look at whether the the pattern of results it gets from the subject matches the patterns of results we have from our clinical population which are very well characterized these have a you know a full expert diagnosis we have a whole you know very 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 solid uh endpoints for those ones so we know where these patients are so it looks to compare to that and that's fine it tells you how more or less you you look like that or, or not so that's true and that works as a one shot now the trends over time are actually where it becomes very, very interesting, because if you are measuring what your own baseline is and look for deviations or patterns of changes from that, that's when it becomes incredibly powerful. And that's where we honestly believe that, that the kind of future in terms of the sensitivity and the predictive nature lies is in that how people's patterns change over time. So you see people are stable, then suddenly start getting you know more variability in that, downward trends and so on. These are going to be the first signs, okay? And what they require is, is longitudinal studies to, to separate those. And we're working on a, a couple of those at the moment, one notably in Oxford with um, healthy people who, who have a genetic susceptibility to, to disease. So this is, again, looking for the transition from normal into disease state. And again, that's, so that, that's one area. I mean, in terms of the future of AI, you know, I mean, AI has been fairly massively oversold in a number of areas, particularly around health data and so on. But but what we are trying to do is is really exactly what AI is good at, which is which is detecting patterns in data. And to your point about you know biases built in there, a real important philosophy of our data science team and our chief scientific officer is really the idea that we use explainable AI. The idea is that you should be able to have it audited, have it looked at. People can understand what the elements of the model are that are going in there because that black box approach to AIs is, is, as we all know, is very, very dangerous. Um, and then in the future, really what we do is, is look to extend, uh, expand what those AIs can do to predict. Because at the moment we are a generalized assessment. This is where it has a lot of impact on healthcare. It solves a very particular set of problems in healthcare around brain health. Um, the future is really through taking data sets of well-characterized data sets of patients with a specific condition and looking to make a prediction as to whether that is the cause of the impairment. And that's really where we go to, to the next level with that. So, uh, and indeed, we, we filed a patent last year um, around using it for predicting specific pathology in brain tissue. So these are pathologies associated with Alzheimer's disease, for example. So uh, so there's loads of, I mean, it's, it's incredibly 
powerful and, and you know there's an enormous amount of potential but oh, yeah. right now we're, we're sort of nailing that the general use clinical product really establishing that in the market you know getting traction and, and building our customer base and then from then there are more um, places we can take this through our installed base to add more help for decision making for doctors that's really what we are um, also probably incredible utility from a clinical research standpoint so case in point COVID-19 happened. I mean, we're obviously out of it now, but it has had dramatic impact on how clinical trials are being done, specifically this idea of hybrid trials or decentralized trials. A lot of trial protocols were modified to ensure that these patient reported outcomes were enabled. So patients would be able to use tools or there would be other sort of digital tools in order to capture some of the outcomes of whatever clinical intervention. Um, and I, so I'm just curious, around how Cognica and how your company is getting involved with sponsors and manufacturers and using your software as a tool for measuring and outcomes in clinical research? Yeah, uh, again, a very good question. I mean, uh, our tool is, is perfectly suited for that. Um, so not only through its sensitivity, but actually through its repeatability and importantly, this lack of learning effect. And just to illustrate that example, you know, if you think about Alzheimer's disease modifying therapeutic trials, so when they get to the late stages, they have to include a measure of cognitive function. It's one of the main main elements of the of the study that needs to go on. Now, if you are using a test where you can't take it repeatedly because you have a learning effect which increases people's scores over time, you're limited to really taking one of these traditional tests at the beginning and the end of the study. Now, these tests are incredibly these studies are incredibly expensive. And it seems like an awful lot of, um, you know, risk to have the outcome of that trial in the balance of a fairly imperfect tool that can be taken infrequently. With a tool like ours, you could do it every day if you want to. It has the same um, level of objectivity every single time it's taken. There's no learning effect. You do it, you can't get better at it. There's a very sort of clear ceiling and, and performance bands for people. So it, it does absolutely make sense. Um, now, we have a number of, of collaborations with academic partners for doing this sort of thing, actually in, in a number of disease areas. Um, but I think that, that what you find with drug trials is that they tend to be planned so far in advance in a very sort of conservative way. You know, there, there is no, no particular desire to rock the boat. So I think that the positive impact on what we do is a little further down the line. But, you know, it's certainly the case that that people like pharmaceutical companies are interested in, in doing this. 100%. So it is a really do. great way to assess things that nobody was able to assess before. So uh, in terms of, you know, uh, side effects and, and uh, you know, and, uh, and evaluating some of the impacts. I'm also just curious, you mentioned collaborations with a lot of institutions and collaborations with universities and things. I'm also curious if you have or will consider other potential business collaborations with companies that specialize in neurological disorders, but more using things like ambient biometrics through the use of keyboards or pedometers and, and all these other things, and maybe creating the super app or the super software. Is that, is that something that's in play or in conversation? Yeah, so, so we, our technology works very well in, in, in these areas, you know, particularly if you're looking to give users a tool to chart their progress throughout any sort of course whether it's therapy whether it's uh, you know it's learning a language all this sort of thing so so you know we're so so kind of usable and so easy to integrate in all those things um the, the yeah so, so i think that is 
it's a very important area for us. And, and one of the things we've really tried to do with our technology infrastructure is to make it very usable. So we've actually built a whole sequence of, of APIs that enable us to be consumed in other people's systems. So if you have a you know, a, a, an app system to do digital therapeutics, for example, the idea that you can include a simple to do reliable measure of people's cognitive health as they go through it is, is a very, very powerful combination. And actually by giving people that feedback, is incredibly positive in terms of people adhering to programs, to keeping going, to seeing the impact of what they're doing. So, so that is very much part of, of the way we see this going. And it's, it's early days for us in, in that area, but it makes absolute sense. And we certainly have um, a few conversations going on around that sort of approach. Tom, I'm also curious about the longer term plans of what your company is looking at doing with data. Obviously, through this process, I mean, the question comes down to, is this edge computing? Is this personalized just between a patient and their physician? Or is there going to be a, an accumulation of data in a database? And if so, what do you foresee as being the plans for this around population health management, the progression of disease? We're talking about like a bolus of people moving into their senior years and dementia and other neurological disorders coming up. Is there trends geographically, age-wise, uh, you know, population-based? What is going to happen with that? And, and are you doing that through evaluation of your data? Yeah, again, again, a really important point. I mean, as our technology gets utilized over larger and larger populations, indeed, we, we do gather a, a wealth of data. Now, obviously, this is anonymized. You know, we don't keep any personal information on, on our systems. And obviously, the customers that we're doing with this have their own you know, secondary uses for the data over and above just identifying patients. But but absolutely, I mean, the population health management piece is incredibly important and it's becoming more and more as more big players move into the field. Your GEs and IBMs of this world are, are definitely interested in this. But, you know, what I would say about us is that we're an incredibly important tool in that because there is no other way to, to get this kind of, you know, close to real-time feedback on, on population um, brain health and indeed looking at trends over time. So, so it is, it's, a, it's a very, very big deal. And understanding the dynamics of, of, of brain health across a population is a very important predictive measure for cost, you know, for impact down the road. You know, where, where do you need to invest in? And we, we all know, you know, brain health is a massively growing issue, just like you said earlier, with, with having a, an increasingly aging population, but also more awareness about it as well. The fact that people don't just ignore it. It's not something that just happens and it's passive. You can be very much more proactive and dynamic about it. So again, from an individual level, very important, but on a population level, incredibly powerful. So Tom, um, you know, we talked a lot about the diagnosis piece, which is a huge, huge component. And as you mentioned earlier, a huge unmet need and will be so increasingly over time as we look at our aging population. But I think another important question that people are going to have is, well, you know, maybe I might be having something or I know I have a family history or, you know, it's just going to be an age and I want to do something to prevent myself from degenerating. I want to maintain my good neurological health. Your company has also developed a really interesting um, software called OptiMind. I was wondering if you can actually talk about that and where some of its clinical utility is. Yeah, so so Optimize is a very interesting uh, thing. You know, we built it as effectively as initially as a proof of concept. So the idea is that okay, if you could take this technology, and and put it in a in a much more sort of personal health wrapper. So we take away the clinical component. It's not going to make any sort of diagnosis, but it gives you a tool that enables you to measure, you know, yourself against yourself. So you you know you start to take the test. The the, the platform works out what your kind of normal range is. 
you look to see the impact of various elements in, in your lifestyle or in your cognitive health, because most people would want to optimize their brain health. And, you know, there's some very good research and evidence that says that through modifying lifestyle factors that can positively impact your, your brain health. So, so optimizing is set up very much as a, it's, it's like, a, you know, like a, a health app. So it you know invites you in, it enables you to connect it to your Apple Watch. You can enter information about your lifestyle, what you're eating, sleeping, all this sort of thing goes in there. And then it's able to sort of work out what are the things that most positively impact your cognitive health in your lifestyle patterns. So so you know it's it's really it's it's an enabling tool. It empowers people to to understand and to take control of what they do in their life for their for their brain health. And and it's and it turns out to be really quite fun and a, and a fairly kind of, you know, sticky, sticky tool. So, you know, the, the, the potential for that going forwards is, is very, very important. You know, again, we're, we're not, if you use the platform, the data is yours. You know, we don't share this with anyone that's not sent to any doctors. It's not anyway, it's, it's for you to, you know, to, to monitor yourself. But of course, if you start seeing any, any changes in your pattern, then, you know, it's, it would be entirely natural for you then to perhaps go and speak to your doctor and have the clinical tool you know, have that used and, and and put it in the context of other things. So, so it's very interesting. I, mean, I think that that is ultimately the, the, where the, a lot of the future of this kind of technology goes, that you put it in people's hands, you know, you bring it closer to them from it being an exclusively uh, medical experience. But, but yeah, no, it, it's a great thing. And indeed, we've got a, a trial going on with a you know, very big Japanese insurance group on, on trying out whether it works with their consumers as just something that they have, you know, by, by giving people a tool, that enables them to look after their own brain health, they start to do so, right? And then in which case you're actually de-risking an awful lot of very expensive, complicated, you know, hard to diagnose things that, that happen that can be very much offset or, or delayed by, by good, good lifestyle practice. Beautiful. Lots and lots of exciting things, Tom, with what Cognectivity is doing um, with, uh, with all of your software, with um, Cognitca and Optimine and probably other things in the future. So very exciting. For anybody who is interested in this discussion and would like to connect with Tom, either collaborations, partnerships, learning more, please look for his contact details in the show notes below. We also encourage if you enjoyed this conversation, please check out impetusdigital.com. These are the kinds of discussions we have with physicians, payers, allied healthcare providers and payers working with sponsoring pharma or medical device companies on planning and doing different things with their brands around education and market access, you know, education, et cetera. We do this through a series of synchronous and asynchronous touch points over time, all digitally and manage with our white glove service. So please check out infidusdigital.com. We'd also thank you for your time. Please um, like, and subscribe. And we'd also really appreciate if you can leave some feedback on iTunes. Thank you all for your time. Tom, this was an absolutely enjoyable uh, conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Healthcare Goes Digital podcast. Impetus Digital are the business-to-business -business virtual engagement experts and provide immersive virtual collaboration and communication solutions for advisory boards, medical education meetings, events, conferences, and projects worldwide all delivered with our award-winning white glove service. Visit us at impetusdigital.com or book a demo at meetwithimpetus.com to find out more. And visit us on our LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube channel to see other inspiring conversations for you to share with your network.